0: God is opening his heart to us this morning. Right here, through his word. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that incredible? The Bible is God opening up his heart to us. He's just pulling back the curtains and he says, come and see what I'm like. So let's not ignore him today. Let's be open to what he has to say to us. Let's just take him at his word. In fact, here's our big idea today. Let's trust Him. We can do that, right? Do we have any reason to not trust Jesus? He has been so good to us, so faithful, so true to His words, so let's trust Him today. Let's listen to Him. Besides, why would we want to ignore God? He's been so good to us. Has he ever given us reason to distrust him? Answer no. And it's pretty amazing if you slow down enough to think about it. In the Bible, God has revealed himself to us who he is, what he is like. He has revealed his heart to us, us. he's laid a feast before us in his word. Page after page in the Bible, we see God's heart, his very heart. I love what J.I. Packer said about this in an article in By Faith magazine. He said, here's the reality, Packer says, the God of the universe, before whom the nations are as a drop in a bucket, comes to you and begins to talk to you through the words and truths of Holy Scripture. Right now, Packer insists, God is actually speaking to you. At first, Packer cautions, the conversation might be discouraging. Initially, God talks with you about your sin, guilt, weakness, and blindness. The conversation might be depressing, he says, because it forces you to see that you are hopeless and helpless and in terrible need. But as you listen, you realize that God is opening his heart to you, making friends with you, and enlisting you as a partner. That is staggering, Packer writes, And it is true. It's as if God puts us on his staff, Packer says. We become insiders, fellow workers, and personal friends. And so as we approach this passage in 1 Kings 22 today, remember that God is speaking to you just as he spoke to the prophet Micaiah, which we've seen over the last few weeks. Now, we tend to take that for granted sometimes, don't we? I know I do. I mean, think about this, God is actually speaking to you, right where you are, in whatever situation you find yourself in today, God is speaking to you, today, right now. God, you, His Word, His heart, your situation, your heart. So God is opening his heart to us this morning. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings 22. God is going to tell us what he's like through an arrow that just happened to sneak through a crack in King Ahab's armor. God, I love that about God. God can tell you what he's like by using some random Syrian dude who is a pretty decent archer. I mean, don't you love that about Jesus? Jesus. Jesus is like, what can I tell my people who are stuck in Babylon as slaves and exiles, what can I tell them about me to give them hope? What can I use to get their attention? I know I'll use some random dude from Syria who's pretty good with a bow and arrow. Don't you love that about Jesus? He's not boring, that's for sure. Isn't God wild? Because God could have just said, hey, y'all trust me, okay, I got this. But he doesn't do that here. Instead, he uses some random dude from Syria who's pretty good with a bow and arrow to tell us about himself. And what is God saying to the original audience of 1 Kings who were in exile as they read 1 Kings? And what is he saying to us today? He's telling us that we can trust his word, that we can trust him We can trust his promises even when things seem bleak, even if we get thrown in jail like the prophet Micaiah. So 1 Kings 22, we'll begin in verse 29. Hear the word of the Lord. So Ahab, the king of Israel, and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went to Ramoth-Gilead, and the king of Israel, that's Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. So we pick up where we left off last week and Ahab king of Israel and Jehoshaphat king of Judah are going to battle against Syria in order to get back the city of Ramoth Gilead that rightly belongs to them. Now remember what we saw over the past few weeks. Micaiah had prophesied that King Ahab would die in battle if he went to fight against the Syrians. However, Ahab's 400 prophets gave him the green light to go into battle. And so off into battle, Ahab goes. Ahab is certainly a strange cat though, isn't he? He doesn't want to hear God's word through the prophet Micaiah. We saw that back in verse 8. And yet he wants to hear it in verse 16. We saw that. And now here in verse 30, he must fear God's word because he wants to disguise himself when he goes into battle. But then he defies God's word by going into battle. It's like he thought to himself, Micaiah said I would die if I go to war, so I'll disguise myself and then go to war, and then I will be safe. So King Ahab tells King Jehoshaphat to go out into battle, dress in his royal robes, which is what a king would be expected to wear in battle. But Ahab says, I'm going to dress up in a Halloween costume. I'm going to dress up as Joe Israelite. Hmm, why Ahab? Why are you disguising yourself? Maybe he fears that the word of God through the prophet Micaiah might really be true. And so Ahab reasons that he can get around God's word and still go into the battle and all he has to do is play dress up. What Ahab doesn't know is that Yahweh's word will come to pass. You can try to dress up as Joe Israelite, but you're still going to die, Ahab. So we're told that the king of Syria had instructed his 32 captains to avoid fighting the average Israelite soldier and to look specifically for King Ahab. So the battle plans are simple. Kill King Ahab. That's the mission. So the Syrian soldiers see King Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he's all decked out in his royal robes, and these Syrian soldiers assume this is King Ahab. So they go chasing him, and after they chase him down, Jehoshaphat cries out, says, I'm not Ahab. I'm not the guy you're looking for. He's not the guy. He's not the king they're looking for. And so the Syrian soldiers say, these aren't the dudes we're looking for. And some of you caught that. And it appears that King Ahab's plan is working. No one has discovered his identity. He's fooled everyone. His Joe Israelite costume is on point. But what Ahab is about to learn is that you can't fool God. Ahab is about to learn that God even keeps arrows on his payroll. Look at verse 34. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Ahab thought he was safe, and yet a no-name Syrian shoots an arrow into the air, and bam, Ahab is hit. Notice the phrase there, at random. Literally in Hebrew, it's in his innocence. Now, this doesn't mean that this Syrian soldier just let an arrow fly into the air at random without aiming at anything or anyone. It's not like he closed his eyes and then just let the arrow go. What it means is that he aimed directly at Ahab. He just didn't know that Ahab was Ahab. He thought he's just aiming at Joe Israelite. But it was really the king of Israel. So this no-name Syrian had no idea who his target was. But Yahweh did. The Lord did. Yahweh's word came to pass through this no-name Syrian who was aiming at Joe Israelite. It seems like it's a random shot, but it's not. As Alexander McLaren says, Ahab was plated all over with iron and brass, but there is always a crevice through which God's arrow can find its way. Understand this. There is always a nook or cranny or crevice in your life that God can get through. God can get you and me anytime, anywhere. And he loves us so much that he will track us down. We might be running for a while, but Jesus has a way of jumping out from behind the bushes and saying, Boo, gotcha, doesn't he? We've all experienced that, haven't we? Because he loves us so much, he's not going to let us run. He'll jump out from behind the bushes at some point and capture our hearts again. As Alec Motier says, the Lord will not leave us until he has done what he has said to us. This puts the emphasis where it belongs. There is a sovereign God who controls all things All powers and means are at his disposal, but his awesome, irresistible power is his love at work with even destructive capacity directed to constructive ends. In other words, you can't run from the Lord. And if you're running from Jesus today and you know it, are you running from Jesus today? And you know you are. And you just kind of drug yourself in here If you're running from Jesus today, just come on home. Turn around and see him with his arms spread wide to receive you and to love you. And when you come back home to to him, there'll be no frowns. There'll be no crossed arms. In fact, he'll open his arms and squeeze you and hug you and kiss your neck. And then he'll start cleaning you up and transforming you. So if you're running from Jesus today, just come on home. What are you waiting for? He will have you. Just come home. Forsake your sin and come to Jesus. So we're reminded right here on the battlefield that nothing can thwart God. Ahab was all dolled up like an average Israelite soldier. But even then, there was a small crevice in his outfit, just enough space for the Lord to shoot an arrow into. This should humble us. Even when we run from Jesus, there's always a nook or cranny in our heart where the Holy Spirit can squeeze through to arrest our attention again. Don't you love that about Jesus? He can squeeze through small cracks in a human heart, slender Jesus, meek and mild. But this passage also teaches us about the meticulous providence of God. What is providence? God's providence, it's it's the word I prefer. It also goes by the name sovereignty. God's providence is the wonderful and strange and mysterious and wise and unguessable way That God rules and sustains his world. It's his hand intimately involved in every nook and cranny of your life. It's his powerful wisdom at work. And it's very meticulous. Very, very meticulous. The late theologian Augustus Hopkins Strong describes God's providence this way. Providence is God's attention concentrated everywhere. Isn't that good? God's attention concentrated everywhere. That means that there isn't a nook or cranny or crevice in this universe where God's attention is not directed. There's not a nook or cranny or crevice in our government where God's attention is not directed. That's good news in an election year, right? Listen, Jesus is not caught off guard when politicians go on and on and on about what they're going to do or not do. Listen, Jesus has been watching all the political commercials on TV, and he's listening to everything they say, and he's like, "Um, nope, not going to be you, dude. Um, Nope, not going to be you, darling. Listen, no politician has ever caught Jesus off guard. Jesus isn't worried about the future of this country. Jesus isn't caught off guard by any politician, by any government, by any person for that matter. In fact, you have never caught Jesus off guard. And there isn't a nook or cranny in this universe, in this government, even in your life, there isn't a nook or cranny in your heart where God's attention is not completely concentrated. That's comforting. It's kind of scary too, right? But it is very comforting. Personally, the doctrine of God's providence helps me to just take a load off, put my feet up. I don't know about you, but God's providence comforts my heart. It helps me to relax, not be so uptight, helps me not to bite my nails and pace the floor and clench my fists, helps me not to toss in bed so much, helps me not to worry about what might happen in my life or my kids' lives, my wife's life or your life. I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of God's meticulous providence this morning, the kind of providence that directs and guides the arrow of some random Syrian dude on the battlefield. See, 1 Kings 22 is screaming at us that everything that happens in this world happens under the meticulous providence of God. Nothing gets past him, and that should give us hope. And this random dude's arrow makes me want to worship a God like that. We serve a God who takes every decision made by every human being and purposes in and through it to accomplish His plan for His glory and for the good of His elect people. That truth might keep you sane. That truth might hold you over for a few days or a few years. So believe it. Believe it and rub it into every nook and cranny of your heart. This random archer shooting King Ahab was none other than a demonstration of the meticulous providence of God and the inbreaking breaking of his kingdom. And so everything that we go through in this life, every time that we experience some kind of deliverance, every time we see victory from some kind of trouble, every time God answers our prayers, every time we experience a miracle, it is the inbreaking breaking of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not some future thing that we wait for. Jesus is the king now. Were we not just singing it, king of kings? Do we have to put a little asterisk on it and look at the bottom of the slide? Technically, he's not kingdom, a king, because his kingdom is in the future. No, he's the king, and his kingdom is now. And every single time Jesus answers one of your prayers, that is the in breaking of his kingdom into this world. His kingdom is not in the future. It is now. So, all of these answers of prayer, all of this meticulous providence, all of this inbreaking of his kingdom, they're just pictures and they're snapshots of where things are headed. That Jesus is going to make all things new, that he's going to make all sad things come untrue. So, this story in 1 Kings 22 is in the Bible to remind you that you can trust God's word. This story of some guy shooting an arrow is meant to give you hope, to stir up your faith. And so how do we respond to this passage? About a Syrian arrow flying through the air and squeezing through a nook and cranny of Ahab's armor? You respond by saying to one another, let's trust him. You respond by saying to one another, let's trust him. We can trust him. Look at how meticulous his providence was. It squeezed through the armor of King Ahab. We can trust that God. You respond by telling one another, let's rest in his meticulous providence. And it's a lesson that we have to relearn over and over and over again, isn't it? We never grow out of this as God's children. We are always being put in situations where we have to trust God. Here's the problem we don't want to be put in situations where we have to trust God, do we? We want to get to a place where we can say, I'm not that needy, I'm not that desperate. We are always being put in situations where we have to trust God because that makes us dependent on him. And when we're dependent on him, who gets the glory? The person who's dependent and pulling their hair out and biting their nails and saying, I don't know what's going to happen, Jesus, you've got to come through for me. Does that person get the glory then? No. Who gives that person the glory? <laughs> Jesus. No glory for you. He gets the glory. When we're on our knees, biting our nails and saying, I have nowhere else to go. And if you don't intervene, Jesus, I'm going to lose my mind. When we're at that place, he gets glory big time. But if we walk with swagger, where's the lightning bolt, right? We're always being put in situations where we have to trust God always in fact that's the whole bible isn't it the bible is full of story after story after story after story of people having to trust god over and over and over again do we think it's going to be any different for us do we think somehow we get a pass on this trusting jesus thing i hate to burst your bubble but we don't get a pass God will keep on putting all of us in situations where we have to learn anew that we can trust Him and it will happen for the rest of our lives. You might as well get comfortable being desperate and needy. There's really no sweeter place though, is there? That means that God has put you in a situation in your life right now Today, whatever it is you're going through right now, and he wants you to trust him. To trust that he is going to bring good out of this. To trust that he has not abandoned you. To trust that he often does wild and crazy things for his people. I mean, think about the prophet Micaiah. Micaiah had to sit in jail and wait to see if King Ahab died on the battlefield like he told King Ahab. Imagine that, waiting and waiting to see if God's word would be fulfilled. Imagine how wild and crazy the word of the Lord was that came to the prophet Micaiah that he then had to deliver to King Ahab. Get this message he had to tell King Ahab. I saw a spirit approach God and offer to go be a lying spirit in the mouth of your prophets. And so Ahab, your boys are lying to you. You're going to die in battle. Now, think about Micaiah sitting in jail and hoping that this wild and crazy word that he delivered to King Ahab would come true. He had to trust the Lord's word. He had to trust God's wild and crazy word about spirits conversing with God in heaven and then one being sent out to lie to Ahab. That's wild, isn't it? Understand this, Grace, God doesn't water down his word. He doesn't water down his promises to what looks conceivable to us. He doesn't whittle them down to make them easier to believe or to make them manageable. Why would he do that? Jesus makes big Seemingly too good to be true, wild and crazy, out-of-this-world promises that go against what we think is the norm. He makes promises that are so outrageous that we often have trouble believing them, right? I mean, Micaiah is sitting in jail trusting God's word that a lying spirit tricked Ahab's prophets so that Ahab will go to battle and die. That's a wild word. And now think about the original audience. They were sitting in exile as slaves in Babylon. How did this passage, how did 1 Kings 22 land on them? They had a promise that God would bring them back home after 70 years. They needed to be reminded that God's promise through the prophet Jeremiah, who said, after 70 years, God's going to bring you back. They needed to be reminded that that promise would come true. And so as they lived their lives in exile... Away from home, going through sorrow and pain and suffering and hardship and raising kids and living paycheck to paycheck, they had to learn to trust what God said over what they could see. What God said to the prophet Jeremiah and what God was saying to them through 1 Kings 22. They were being reminded that the Lord's word would come to pass and that nothing could stop it. 1 Kings 22 is in the Bible to tell them and to tell us that God's word controls history. God's word controls your history. God's word controls the history of this church. That's what this passage is trying to beat into our heads and hearts. So that means that we can trust Jesus right now, in this moment, all the way to the end of our lives. Even though we can't see that far into the future, can we? Even though we don't have a picture of what our future holds, even though we don't know what's going to happen to us next week, we can trust Jesus. And so what is our part? What to do? You can strip it down to just two simple words. Trust Jesus. That's it. It's simple, but if you've been a Christian for very long, you know that trusting Jesus is not easy, is it? It doesn't come natural to us. It isn't easy for us because of the unknown and because we don't know what the future holds. And so God is saying to us today in the middle of our uncertainties, just as he was saying to the original audience in Babylon, you won't always understand me. You won't always get what I'm doing or know what I'm up to, but you can always trust me. I'm trustworthy, always. Oh, and by the way, in case you forgot, I specialize in impossible situations. So why don't you cast your cares on me? I got this, okay? And so an arrow from some random Syrian dude squeezing through a crack in a Joe Israelite costume seemed like an impossible situation, didn't it? But God did it. And we can trust him because he does things like that. That's the Christian life right there. That's discipleship. Learning anew to trust Jesus every day. You know what discipleship is? It's waking up in the morning and saying, I have to trust Jesus in this situation. I don't want to be in this situation, but I'm a disciple and I have to trust Jesus in this situation. Now let me ask you, when has that ever gone bad for you? When has trusting Jesus ever turned out bad for you? Never, because he's faithful. There is no downside to trusting Jesus whatsoever. There is no fine print at the bottom of your TV screen that if you trust Jesus, you also might get migraines and whatever, shingles, et cetera, et cetera, right? Right? You don't get that with Jesus. None of his promises say, if you trust this now, just just so you know, you might get migraines and shingles and your left arm might fall off, but you can trust Jesus. You don't get any of that. There is no downside to building your life on this book. And so Ahab gets hit with an arrow because God has his number. The word of the Lord through the prophet Micaiah came true. And the word of the Lord spoken through the prophet Elijah all the way back in 1 Kings 21 is also about to come true because Elijah told Ahab that dogs would lick up his blood and that's exactly what happened. Look at verse 35 now. Therefore Ahab said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset, a cry went through the army. Every man to his city and every man to his country. So Ahab died and was brought to Samaria. And they buried him in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria. And the dogs licked up his blood. And the prostitutes washed themselves in it. According to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. So Ahab tells his chariot driver, he's been hit. I need to get off the battlefield. Get me to the ER. But instead he's propped up and he faces the, the battle all day long. He bleeds out until the floor mats of his chariot were soaked with blood, and then by dinner time he's dead. And everybody says, It's over. We gotta go home. Then they buried Ahab. And then what do you do next? You take the chariot to the car wash, right? You gotta rinse all that blood out. So the chariot is washed out and all the blood is washed away, and the dogs were there to lick it all up just like the prophet Elijah had said. What a sad day indeed. Ahab dies, and yet, and get this, life goes on as normal. Dogs lick up blood and prostitutes bathe in the city fountain to prepare for their evening work shift. Life goes on. And all of this happened as verse 38 says, according to the word of the Lord God's word controls history and life goes on according to the word of the Lord there's another reminder for us in the text it's as if the author of 1 Kings wants us to read verse 38 and to look at one another and say let's trust him he wants us to look at one another and say let's trust him Can I share a preacher pet peeve of mine? Thank you. I hate when preachers say, now, look at your neighbor and tell them, have you ever heard anyone do that? I hate that. It's just my personal issue, but I hate it. I hate hearing preachers say, turn to your neighbor and tell them, I'm too blessed to be stressed. And turn to your other neighbor and say, have an attitude of gratitude. I hate that stuff. Sorry, not sorry. But if I was one of those preachers, this would be a perfect time to tell you, and I'm not going to, but this would be a perfect time to tell you to look at your neighbor and say, let's trust him. We're not going to do that. But what I want you to do when you leave here and you're stressing out about life, I want you to look at your spouse and say, let's trust him. And when your kids are concerned about something going on in their life, I want you to look at them and say, let's trust him. And when you come up against some obstacle in your ministry, look at one another and say, let's trust him. And in your ministry meetings, look at one another and say, let's trust him. Sadly, King Ahab did not do that. And so instead of reading his obituary about how he trusted the Lord Instead, we get a pretty generic one. Look at verse 39. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did and the ivory house that he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers and Ahaziah his son reigned in his place. So Ahab gets the standard summary here that we've seen throughout First Kings. The author of 1 Kings wants us to know that if you want to know more about the ivory house that Ahab built or all of his other accomplishments, he says you can find that in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. By the way, this is not, they're not talking about the books of First and Second Chronicles here. It's another set of books. It's kind of like ancient Israel uh, Wikipedia. If you want all the juicy details on Ahab's life, go online. Google him. Stuff will pop up. But that's not what matters. Those details don't get recorded in Holy Scripture. Why? Because in the end, those things don't really matter, do they? What matters most in this life is not what we accomplish, not what ivory houses we build, but how we respond to God's word. Obviously, Ahab has failed to respond appropriately to God's word. And now, what about you? In the end, all the stuff that you do, the accomplishments and the success, it will not matter. What will matter is how you responded to God's word, how you responded to Jesus, the word incarnate. Listen, Jesus loves you and he lived and died for you, for your rebellion and for your sin. Let me ask you, have you responded to him by faith? Repent. That just means turn from living for you. Turn from thinking you're the greatest thing and always wanting your way. Instead, turning and living for him and his kingdom and his glory. Turn from that and trust in him and be born again. If you don't, All you have to look forward to after you have built your ivory house is eternity in hell suffering punishment for your sin. And I don't want that for any of you. So come on home. Jesus is waiting. Call out to him now and just say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus loves to hear sinners cry that. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he will. He will. He's good to bad people. And for those of you who have already done this, and you're a Christian, one of God's adopted children, and you're trusting in Christ alone, know that you are loved and that you are forgiven. And you are clean. You just kind of feel dirty all the time. Like you just can't shake that feeling. You're clean. Jesus says you're clean, so you're clean. And God smiles when he looks on his children. So trust him today. Let's trust him that what he says about us and all the benefits that we have in Christ, let's trust that that's true. Trust that the gospel is true. Despite how you may be feeling, your heavenly father is looking at you today and his face is beaming. He's rejoicing over you today. Rest in that truth. It is finished. Jesus paid it all. Let's trust him. And what can wash away our sin? Our good works being good enough? No. What can wash away our sin? Our rule keeping? Keeping all the rules? No. What can wash away our sin? Is it our, I've got to do more. I've got to try harder. That kind of attitude? No. What can wash away our sin? Nothing. Nothing. But the blood of Jesus, how precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. How precious is the flow of blood from the cross that makes dirty people like us clean in God's eyes. How precious is the flow that just washes away all the filth and we look like snow, pure white God says that we are clean, we are loved, we are accepted, we are righteous, we are forgiving, forgiven, and we don't have to do anything to get it. Nothing. It's free. Just believe and just receive and open the empty hands of faith and say, I'll take it. So if God says that we are loved unconditionally and he rejoices over us, with singing, then let's trust him. We can do that, right? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you came into this world to save sinners. And because of that, you alone deserve all glory. You deserve all glory in this church, all glory in our lives And as you take us places that we wouldn't choose to go in our life, may we not have swagger. May we be broken and humble on our knees and cry out to you and be desperate and needy so that you get the glory. We want you to be honored and glorified in our life and through everything that happens in our life, Jesus. Thank you for shedding your blood to wash away our sin. How precious is that flow? In your name we pray, amen.